Turb Alpern, the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. This is actually the end of the podcast uh, to which you're about to listen. Uh, and my guest is actually still here. We're recording. This is an ex- this is a uh, an ad hoc uh, introduction we're recording at the end of the podcast. So we're in the future, but also in the past at the same time. Dave Cameron. Listeners, run, run away, listeners. Go do anything else with the next half hour of your life. Don't stick around. <laughs> so, okay, so there you know, My guest is uh, Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Dave, uh, we think we talk about the Tanaka situation. Yeah. Uh, we, we talk about uh, portacafs and food and crepes and uh, galettes. Travel. Colette's, yes, buckwheat flour. It is a it is a wild, rousing edition of Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, that's right. And you can see Dave Cameron made it through to the end. So there's that too. That's right. He didn't die in the in the taping. Which yeah, was that's good. right. And he's and we could say he's 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 sick, but no more sick than the rest of us. Right. Well, maybe a little more sick than the rest of us, but no more sick than he has been for quite a while. Right. Okay. And so uh, so why don't you listen to this edition of the podcast? This incredibly edifying edition. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron. And it uh, begins right now. Uh, I am right in the room. That's that's why. Oh yeah, look at. Um, <clears throat> I wish to correct you. Uh, if you were in the room, I would definitely see you. I am in the room that I am referring to. I oh. might not be in the room that you are referring to. You're in that room now. Did you do you have some sort of new arrangement? Did you get a, uh, a like a a headset for Christmas or something? Nope. I'm yeah. using the same arrangement I always have used. Yeah. Did you get like an ear transplant? Yeah, maybe I got a little bit of an ear transplant. Yeah, maybe. Yep. You got hey. up- upgraded the earring. Yeah, I did. What did you? Uh, <laughs> how you doing? How's your How's your Noel? Uh, it was good. We, uh, we hung out with the in-laws, which is always a good time. Yeah. And, uh, I got an electric smoker. Not like a, not like the kind of person who stands in the back, but like a, you know, like the kind you'd use for southern food. Oh, yeah, right. To, uh, yeah, right. To, to, to smoke like a, like a, to do a, could you do a brisket? You could do a brisket or, you know, a turkey or a chicken or, uh, pulled pork, you know, those kinds of items. Oh, yeah. Do you, uh, is that something that you aspire to do? I like uh, some of those kinds of foods, and they're generally better with some smoky flavor than in the oven, which is how I have generally cooked them before or in a crock pot or in, you know, a Dutch oven or something. Yeah, right. So, you know, this is a, a, an interesting possibility of, of becoming even more Southern than I already am. Right, right, right. And there, But there are aspects, certainly, of Southern cuisine that are appealing, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, like the longer I've lived in the South, the more I've appreciated southern cuisine i mean you know like it has a bad rap for just everything being fried and there's certainly aspects of the southern culture that's just like fry everything uh but there are parts of southern food that are not fried that are actually quite good like greens i did not grow up eating collard greens or turnip greens or mustard greens or any of these kinds of things they're actually they're actually pretty good and quite good for you as long as you don't cook them in too much bacon fat Oh, you use fat. Now, I was wondering if you know how you saute them. Do you do like a garlic and oil, or do you do? Um... I mean, it depends on how healthy we're trying to be. I think with collard greens, uh, you're generally serving them with some kind of you know cornbread, kind of southern staple. So they're having some uh, porky flavor in there is not such a bad thing. But you know, like kale or turnip greens or mustard greens that are more of like a side dish to a fish or something will go with the garlic and oil, or you know, a little healthier than the, than you know a little bit of pork fat. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, greens are certainly good. Are those do those tend to be pretty bitter, the collard greens or the others? They, they can be, but if you cook them uh correctly, the bitterness kind of melts away a little bit and you know, you can add in some like crushed red pepper and you can make them a little spicy and uh there's certainly ways to mitigate their their bitterness. And then, you know, if you pair them with something that's a little bit on the sweeter side, then it's nice to have something on the plate that's a little, you know, a little crunchy and a little bit acidic. Yeah. Um uh this just to delay uh, talk of baseball momentarily. My uh, my wife and I are actually uh, you and I are recording this on a Thursday. That's uh, Thursday evening, my time, more in the afternoon, your time, and um, um, we're going to be leaving town here to go to Ren. Uh, to Ren, we got a good uh, train fare there and back, and Ren is sort of uh, known as one of the capitals, or maybe the sort of the capital of the Breton region. Oh, okay. Uh, which is known uh, for crepes, among other things. So we're going right, to yes. fill our bodies full of those. The cr- crepes are quite delicious. Yeah, they, cer- <laughs> they certainly can be. I mean, they're uh, you know there's a, they're available here in Paris, but I guess it's the place. Oh, galette, I'm supposed to say. Apparently, galette. What's the difference? Buckwheat apparently is the difference. What? Buckwheat flour. Oh, yeah, buckwheat flour. Not not that good. Well, I don't know. Wait, what, are the galettes the one with the buckwheat flour? Well, she says it's good. Okay. Well, you, I will have, await your report. I, I will say, like, generally, if you go to a place in America that serves like buckwheat pancakes, they're usually for like the person trying to watch their figure, and no one ever orders them. Oh yeah. Well, this will also have probably ham on it. So. Ah, well, that might improve things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have a bunch of those and uh, see the sites. They have a bunch of nice architecture. Cool. Ren. Let's uh, let's talk. About, it's uh. This is a, this is a Boxing Day edition of uh, Fangraphs Audio. Although it might Apparently even be going a food, up. food and travel edition. Yeah, right. Well, it's uh, probably it, let's see. It hasn't been entirely dead, but it's been slower of late, of course, because uh, uh, much like you and I, the front o- members of front offices also like to take a little break. And um, one, uh, so let's do this. This is um, this is news over the last uh, uh, 24, 48 hours. It concerns. A uh, Rakuten Golden Rakuten Golden Eagles pitcher uh, Masahiro Tanaka. Yes. Uh, and after some questions, uh, question marks, the it appears as though the Golden Eagles have uh, decided to post uh, Tanaka, who um, I guess if we look at the entire free agent class of the 2013-14 offseason, uh, I guess is maybe the the best free agent pitcher available. Uh, yeah, pretty clearly. I mean, the, the competition is uh, Urban Santana and Abaldo Jimenez and Matt Garza. That's, uh, you know, damning with some faint praise. But I think, you know, the general consensus from people I have talked to who have either seen him pitch or done some work on, you know, how much they would pay him is that he's being seen as a Zach Greinke-ish pitcher, and I think he's going to get a Zach Greinke-ish contract of, you know, including the posting fee somewhere around $150 million in total expenditures probably over seven or eight years. Uh, so I think that's kind of the level of pitcher that people are expecting him to be is, uh, you know, generally the best free agent pitcher in most classes. Okay. Now, so with regard to – so let, let's regard with the, 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 the – let's look at the posting situation first of all before we talk about Tanaka. The um, Okay, so, of course, MLB and NPB agreed on this rule uh, this offseason uh, or agreed to, that the maximum, the, the sort of ceiling for posting fees would be $20 million, uh, which – I mean, obviously, you could see how that would be in the best interest of owners uh, because they don't now they don't have to pay as much. But the so what happens is uh, any team that posts uh, that that agrees to a twenty million dollar posting fee, if there are multiple teams, 
uh, what, the player isn't allowed to go to the highest bidder, essentially? Yeah, I mean, I think, actually, this probably is not in the best interest of the owners. I think the system that MLB and NPB set up is great for the player, and not so good for either NPB or MLB teams. I mean, you can make an argument that maybe it's a little more fair, and that basically the players are now free agents, but the cost of these players is going to skyrocket. I mean, you, Darvish, I think, signed for $60 million or something in that range. Uh, you know, we've generally seen that the posting fee and the contract the player would sign were you know, about the same. Teams would kind of split it down the middle, and it would be a 50-50, you know, half would go to the team, half would go to the player. Now it's going to be $20 million to the Japanese team, and in Tanaka's case, probably $120, $130 million to the player. Um, so it's going to be a drastic increase in the amount of money going to the player. And I don't think it's going to hold down overall costs, uh, because now you're introducing essentially free agency where there's going to be competition for his services in order to sign, and every team in baseball can negotiate with him. Um, so I think we're going to see the cost of Japanese players through the posting system go up uh, overall, and just more of that will make its way to the player. So so it's good for the players? Absolutely. This is maybe the best possible news for Japanese players. Okay, so so who agreed? So why did, the, why did it happen? Yeah, there's a few uh, elements pushing for this. So I think teams had uh, been unhappy with the system that, uh, sent so much money to the, t- to the teams in Japan and, and less to the players. So if you're you Darvish and you're one of the top ten pitchers in Major League Baseball and you're pretty dramatically underpaid, that might be annoying to you. And so you might have the star player on your team who you paid a lot of money for who still feels somewhat undercompensated uh, relative to his peers and the, the players he's as good as. I think if you're a team like the Rangers and you shelled out $110 million, you don't necessarily – feel like you underpaid you, Darvish, but he still feels underpaid, and that can present some problems. So I think there was incentive for the teams to transfer more of the money from the Japanese teams to the players by agreeing to the free agency part of this, where now one team is not owning his uh, negotiating rights. I think that was more of a push from uh, kind of a competitive balance issue, where teams didn't want... Uh, one team to be able to say, okay, if there's a $20 million max posting fee and then one team gets his rights, what if we all, uh, you know, bid $20 million? How are we going to work this out? So, um, I think once they agreed to lower the maximum posting fee, they had to do something along the lines of what they did in order to actually determine the, the market price of the player, uh, given that every team is going to pay $20 million for a pitcher like Tanaka. And right, and so what is the incentive, the incentive from the side of the Japanese league and clubs? Uh, yeah, they didn't, they didn't like it very much. Rakuten actually voted against the proposal. Uh, they were the only team to not vote for it. Uh, and their, their owner has been pretty outspoken in believing that this is bad for Japanese league clubs. I think the reality is they didn't really have much of a choice. This was Major League Baseball kind of imposing their will on MPB and saying, you know, if you want anything for your players, you're gonna agree to our terms, or we'll just let your players wait until their 10 year free agents, uh, are no longer beholden to your teams, and then we'll just take them for nothing. And so this was, uh, Rakuten basically deciding, you know, we'll take the $20 million and make Tanaka happy rather than just keeping him for another couple of years and then letting him leave without any compensation. Right. And how many more years of control did they have with Tanaka? Two, I believe. Okay. And here's a question. There's your dog. Hello? Yeah, so yes. Yes. Um, Liberty has joined the party. Now, if there is a – so here's here's a question. If, if Tanaka were a batter and we say um, – a field player and we say with a field player there's less of a chance of – Serious injury, and less of a chance that uh, that Rakuten would be put into a position where they would receive no posting fee. Uh, do you think uh, they would have they would have still agreed to post uh, that field player? 
Not necessarily. I do think there's something, and not that I'm an expert on Japanese culture, but there is something to a kind of an honorable uh, perception of giving the player what he wanted. And I think the owner of Rakuten spoke to this and, and said, like, you know, part of their decision was that Tanaka has expressed desire to go play in the U.S. and they didn't want to stand in his way. And they didn't want to be the force presenting, preventing him from pursuing his dream. That said, if you were a star player of Tanaka's uh, level and you were a position player, there was less risk of injury to where they might not get the same posting fee in a year. Uh, I think there would be more incentive for the Japanese team to keep the player and say, you know what, we're just going to um, use all nine years that we can um, uh, to retain his services and then post him in the last possible chance that we can. And I think this might become more common going forward. It's not that the team's won't post their players, but they'll keep them for the full nine years. Because if the posting fee is going to be $20 million after year five or $20 million after year nine, you're getting the same amount of money and you're getting four extra years of control. Uh, so my, my thought is that we might see in the future fewer of these early postings like we've seen with Darvish and now Tanaka. We might see uh, the age of posted players go back up closer to 30. Okay. Now, here's just what, this is just a Michel, question miscellaneous uh, sorts. It, uh, I'm not going to say his name right because I have a, a white person's mouth. But um, there is the catcher, I th- believe he's played for Yomiuri his entire career, uh, Shinosuke Abe. Yes, you said his name. I, yeah, I think something something like that. Um, uh, he is very uh, he's been quite good in that league yeah. in that league for a long time, and uh, I'm curious as to why. And, and maybe there are other players of his quality. I'm just ignorant of them. But w- what is to keep a very good player from not coming over to the United States? Uh, this after ten years, it's their choice. They actually uh, reach what is considered international free agency after 10 years of control to an NPB team. And then after that, it's just their decision. I think uh, um, Hideki Matsui was a player who came over of his own volition. He wasn't posted. Uh, he'd been a, pro- a professional in the Japanese leagues for a long time, and he just reached free agency and then came and signed to the Yankees uh, and didn't go through the posting process. So I think once you've reached kind of super veteran status, uh, then it's just your call. And if you want to come try your your uh, talents in Major League Baseball, you can. Uh, as long as you're not under a multi-year contract with a Japanese team. Right. And so, but it, it, I think Abe has been like in that league for 11 or 12 years. It's just, he doesn't, he just doesn't want to, he just doesn't want to go to the States. It, that's possible. It might also be that, you know, perhaps his success is not, uh, based on things that scouts think will translate very well. And perhaps he would have to take a minor league contract here or, you know, uh, come over with not a, a large guarantee of money. Um, and he could make a lot more. I mean, there's certainly players who can make a lot more money in Japan than, than there are in the U.S., which is why we see a lot of these 4A players uh, going to play in Japan because they can get several million dollar guaranteed contracts where in the U.S. they're going to make the league minimum if they make the team. Yeah, so uh, uh, Kevin Euclid recently yeah. signed uh, with a Japanese team, the name of which is escaping me, but it doesn't matter at this point. Uh, the thing that does matter is uh, – or m- my question still – um, still regards Kevin Euclid, and I'm curious. Of course, in my mind, he's the guy who was very good for a number of years. Yeah. Right? And actually, he's going to Raccoon. So that's the internet says that. Um, right. Uh, he was good for a number of years. Of course, he wasn't uh, particularly good last year, and he could, if for no other reason, he was injured for the majority of it. Um, he's, he might still be injury prone. Um, is he going for any other reason that you know of than uh, than the fact that he can make money doing it, more money there than he could here? 
so there were stories that came out when he decided to go to Japan that said he had decided he did not want to play on the East Coast anymore. He only wanted to play on a West Coast team, and so then he went across the ocean and very yes. far away from the West Coast, which didn't make a lot of sense. But if you think, like, perhaps there were some geographic restrictions and then none of the teams in Major League Baseball were interested in him in his preferred geographic location in America... Uh, if he basically just say, instead of saying he wanted to play on the West Coast, he didn't want to play on the East Coast, uh, then maybe Japan was an appealing option once he ruled out, you know, teams like the Rays and the Yankees, the Red Sox, all the, all the Eastern teams who might be interested in a, you know, part-time first baseman, part-time DH, uh, if he determined that there weren't any job openings, uh, with the American clubs he wanted to play for, then this was probably his next best option to get a paycheck. Maybe maybe it's not uh, it's not East Coast or West Coast. Maybe it's Atlantic Ocean versus Pacific Ocean. Right. It is the Pacific Ocean on both sides. Maybe he just really likes uh, cold water. Yeah. Right. Um, the so again, I my um, my perception of Kevin Euclid is probably altered because I haven't really updated it of late. But he seems like um, a player who's had success. Uh, if, if not necessarily in the last year or two. It remind, reminds me to ask to, uh, and uh, appeal to you with this question. If, if you don't know the answer right off the top of your head, it's fine. Can you think of some of the best players in recent years, you know, 10, 15 years, who've signed with a Japanese club uh, when maybe they could have been employed by an American one too? Yeah, I mean, I think there were – the guys that we see are generally bench player types, right? We don't usually see a Kevin Euclid who could have probably landed at least a – you know, maybe not a starting job, but, you know, uh, part-time platoon DH role where he would have, you know, maybe started 50 to 100 games. Uh, I think, you know, a veteran like that, we don't see a ton of those guys go to Japan. I think what Andrew Jones a couple of years ago uh, went to Japan kind of when uh, major league teams got tired of him. Uh, but, you know, that was maybe a case where Jones might not have gotten a job in, in the U.S. had he not gone to Japan. I don't think we see too many of these kinds of guys making the transition. It's usually younger players, you know, the Vladimir Ballantines, the Brian LaHares, uh, guys in their 20s who are, you know, in the prime of their career and thinking their, their best shot is really to go to the, go to Japan and, and do the best they can. I think Matt Merton's another good example. These are the kinds of players we generally see go across uh, the Pacific, not so much guys like Euclid at the end of their careers who are just trying to hang on for a few more years. Right, yeah. And do, do, you, do you get a sense that um, that if things worked out in the future that Euclid, I mean, this is asking, I'm asking you about Kevin Euclid's psychology, but do right. you think, do you sense that that he's he, he's doing this maybe to have a good season, um, you know, not unlike Casey McGee did, because of course Casey McGee signed with a, a major league contract with Miami recently. After uh, after playing with Rakuten, um, do you, do you think that uh, this is the sort of thing where he's angling to come back, or he just had an offer and he said, "Well," because uh, he seems like maybe Euclid seems a little bit more, um, I don't know, uh, culturally aware than than some players, and he maybe he's excited about Japan. Yeah, I mean, I think I read an article from Alex Spear, I think it was. Uh, who said that this is probably Euclid's last year. He thought that he basically had one more year in him. And uh, since he wasn't getting offers from major league teams that he wanted to play for, he was kind of excited about the cultural experience of having his last year be in Japan. And it didn't sound like he was using this as a, a leverage play to try and get a better job in major league baseball next year. Now, I mean, that being said, if he goes out and you know stays healthy and plays 120 games and does really well, I would imagine if a major league team in his preferred geographic location called him next year, he might say, well, let's give it one more try. Uh, but I think in general, what I've read about the situation is that Euclid, 
actually thought that living one year in Japan uh, for the cultural experience had some appeal to him, and that's part of the reason he did this. Yeah, you know, I always uh, that was always curious to me. Uh, you know, especially basketball basketball players, for example, uh, have frequently ended up in Italy or Spain, and that's you know the, that's generally seen as a consolation prize. Right. Uh, but for me, this this seems like not a bad deal. Uh, but I guess at the same time, if you're an athlete, you want to play at the highest level. You can. Yeah, I think it depends on what your motivations are, right? Like living in Italy or Spain is probably not a bad deal if you're going to eat a lot of pasta and have a lot of tapas. If you're going to be on like some kind of you know gluten-free, no-carb athlete diet, maybe maybe living in the land of good food is more mean than than enjoyable. Oh yeah, it's just uh, it's all always in front of you and you can't have yeah, any of it. Right. I know that the stories of Daryl Dawkins from because uh, he went over to uh, Italian league, they were pretty amusing. But that's neither here nor there, really. So that part of the podcast was telling us that you had amusing stories that you wouldn't share with us? I, I, no, I've forgotten them is really the uh, thing. Okay. Right. Well, I'm glad that there are amusing stories which you cannot recall. Okay, uh, let's stop talking about that part. Uh, let's start talking about the Grant B- Balfour. Grant Balfour. Grant Balfour, yes. Grant Balfour. He's a, he's a pitcher. Yep. Uh, An angry pitcher. Yes, he's angry. He's angry. Um, on the mound, frequently. Yeah, all of the uh, time, it seems. Right, yeah. He's angry all the time. And, uh, well, of course, you know, we know this. Athletes sometimes, they, they sort of take on personas. I don't know what he's like in real life. But he's angry, it seems. Uh, he has a legitimate uh, grievance presently, uh, which is that the Baltimore agreed to sign him. And then they said that they were not going to sign him owing to um, – the results of some uh, tests, you know, uh, physical or whatever. And yet there seems to be generally uh, opinion from other doctors. This, in, this is according uh, to the reportage of Kevin Ken Rosenthal. Uh, there seem to be reasons to suggest that he is healthy. Right. I mean, basically, I think what the the story is, is the after looking at the MRI and the wear and tear on his shoulder, uh, the Orioles team doctors uh, suggested that the there was some reason for concern, and therefore the Orioles backed out of an agreed-to contract. Uh, but, you know, the Rays team doctor and I think the Reds team doctor uh, both looked at the same MRI and said, you know, this is the wear and tear of a normal major league pitcher, and if you're not going to accept this kind of wear and tear, you should get into a different industry because every major league pitcher's arm looks like this after 10 years. Uh, and Balfour, you know, has released public statements from other doctors supporting his cause that, uh, you know, he's fine. He pitched well last season. There's no reason to think that he is any more injured than he was in October when he was throwing well. Um, and it seems like this is something that the Orioles have a history of. I know, uh, what, a decade ago they did this with Aaron Seeley. They had a four-year contract agreement with him. They called it off for medical reasons. He signed with Seattle and pitched well for several more years. Uh, I think there's three or four other players they've done this through without history. Um, or th- with throughout history, and it seems like uh, Peter Angelos may have uh, some strict medical restrictions uh, that other teams do not, and it might be hurting them in terms of acquiring major league talent. Yeah, right. So, uh, so I was actually sort of thinking idly uh, with regard to the Tanaka situation. Maybe one incentive for um, for the, the Golden Eagles to to let Tanaka or to, to post Tanaka is because Tanaka wants to wants to go. And they also have to think about other players they might sign in the future. And if they don't let a player go, then they might make that uh, that club their club a less appealing destination. Um, you're suggesting, perhaps in a um, in a similar way, uh, the Orioles could be creating problems for themselves if they are um, 
developing a reputation of uh, uh, having uh, uh, artificially inflated standards, perhaps, or um, unreasonably high standards for health, uh, especially for pitchers. Yeah, I think the the, the key here is that uh, they agreed to a deal with Balfour, and I think uh, what Peter Gammons noted is now that the Orioles have some history and, and you know more recent history of backing out of agreed to contracts that are uh out there in the public. I think that that's the big reason this hurts Balfour is this is all public knowledge now. Uh you know, it's one thing if a team, you know, is trying to trade for a player, requests the medicals of, a, of that player uh before the trade is completed or even leaked, uh decides they don't want to trade for that player and, and moves on, that player hasn't suffered any like public harm. Other teams don't necessarily know about that uh decision. This was a very public thing where the Orioles had were widely agreed to uh, a two-year contract with him, and then they've decided not to sign him at a press conference or, you know, at least released a statement saying, you know, because of uh, health concerns, we're not going to sign Grant Balfour. So he's now um, had a very public rejection from a major league team based on health concerns. Um, I think if you're an agent negotiating with the Orioles, you might just say, if before I even consider signing with you or negotiating with you, uh, we're going to do the medical thing up front. And I'm not even going to talk to you until you clear them and say we're going, to, we're going to sign this player if we can come to a financial agreement. If you're an agent, I don't know why you'd go through the process of agreeing to a deal with the Orioles if you don't know they're going to go through with it. Um, right. And I have a, a suspicion that uh, that uh, this is not great for Grant Balfour. I mean, now everyone knows the story, but – you know, some time went uh, went by in the interim, and maybe other teams said, "Oh, well, we uh, we're not going to sign Grant Balfour, so we'll sign." I don't, you know, this. I don't know if I have the chronology right, but we'll sign Chris Perez, or we'll sign, uh, you know, we'll sign John Axford, right? Deals have happened in the meantime. One assumes. I think that as the Chris Perez market was almost certainly very different than the Grant Balfour market, simply because Balfour is going to want to pitch in the ninth inning and Perez is not. Okay, fine. Right. I was just I was yeah. just spitballing. Do you see? Right. So I'm going to critique your spitball and say that I don't think any major free agents have signed, free agent relievers have signed since Balfour's deal fell apart. And I think uh, my guess is he's going to end up signing the exact same contract. I think his agent's going to be able to convince some other team. That 215 uh, was the right price, uh, even with his, you know, supposed medical concerns. I actually wrote about it when the deal happened and thought it was a little bit of a bargain, considering how good Balfour has been recently. So I wouldn't be totally surprised if, a, if another team swooped in and said, you know, we like Grant Balfour for 215. We're going to kind of shove it up the Rays or shove it up the Orioles' uh, rear end and say we're going to give them the deal you backed away from and make him watch you pitch the next two years. Yeah. So you think Chris Perez maybe maybe not as good as Grant Balfour? I think Chris Perez is not as good as every person alive named Grant. Like, I think Grant, Grant Bisbee is probably better at pitching than Chris Perez. You know, with, I, I understand what you're saying. At the same time, uh, Chris Perez had a uh, an XFIP, a park-adjusted XFIP, uh, better than league average this year. Yeah, but the league average for a relief pitcher is basically a replacement level. Oh, does that have? Oh, yeah, well, it's because there's a full run, basically, right, in between? Yeah. Replacement level for a reliever is extraordinarily high. So if you're if you have an average xFIP as a relief pitcher, you're not very good. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's a fact. Yeah. Uh, let's. Uh, I don't want to dwell on it just because for some reason it bored me. Uh, the Shinsu Chu deal, seven years, hundred thirty million dollars. It's a big contract. Uh, but it's boring to you. Ah, something about it's boring. But you argued the Rangers signed him. They have a, I guess, a corner outfielder now. 
to replace Nelson Cruz, who wasn't around for a bunch of games last year anyway. But uh, Shin Tzu Chu is good. Um, uh, he Good for him. He got a lot of money. Uh, I guess good for his agent probably. I don't know. But um, uh, maybe not great for the Rangers, you think, uh, because uh, the Yankees – uh, who had offered – is it true that they offered Chu a bigger deal? Well, we don't – I mean, Jeff Passan of Yahoo reported that Chu turned down 7140 and asked for like 143 in order to get a little over the Carl Crawford money. Uh, we don't know if that's true or not, but that's Passan's report. Um, I think it's not even so much that uh, the deal that I don't love uh, with the Rangers is just based on the fact that the Yankees were also in pursuit. It's a, if you look at other three win players, which is I think a pretty fair assessment of what Shin Su Chu is going forward, at least for 2014, they're not giving 130 million dollars. Brian McCann got 85, Hunter Pence got 90, uh, Nick Swisher last year got 52, Michael Bourne got 48. Uh, you know, like there, there's no real uh, evidence that players who are slightly above average but not stars. Uh, are commanding this kind of price. Chu is really the outlier in terms of uh, price for this kind of player. I think if you look at, you know, Andre Ethier, um, you know, uh, Nick Swisher, um, the, the kind of comps for uh, Chu in terms of, you know, quality corner outfielders, uh, you know, Pence is another one from the, earlier this offseason that I thought was overpaid at $90 million. Uh Chu blows them all out of the water. I mean, the, the price that the Rangers paid to get Chu is so much more than these other guys got. Uh, I just don't think it makes sense for Texas to pay Chu like he's a four or five win player, uh, given the fact that he's, he's just not. Hey, uh, speaking of three win players. Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, I did today, I posted on the site the, uh, steamer projections for Astros prospects. Uh, you know, pro rated out to, uh, you know, 500. It's like full season basically. George Springer. Yeah. Uh, very, um, a very optimistic projection uh, from Steamer. Yeah, I think uh, he's kind of a, a fascinating guy, and you know, there's a lot of good and a lot of bad, and it, it's basically a question of will the contact rate cause everything else he's good at to not work in Major League Baseball, right? Like, if you think he's going to strike out 40% of the time, then the rest of the tools don't matter. If he's only going to strike out 28% of the time, you know, then he's Chris Davis with speed. Yeah, and also uh, playing center field probably. Right. Yeah, or at least a good corner outfielder maybe. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, that's a crazy thing. So the weird thing about Springer is, right, typically you don't find college players like this. Right. He's very raw, and uh, this is much more of a 18-year-old uh, or 21-year-old high school player skill set. Uh, but I think, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if his strengths or his weaknesses end up being the one that kind of drive the course of his career, or if he just, you know, remains a very flawed player who is very impressive when he actually hits the ball. Do you think he'll be, because I was actually just looking, because I guess Drew, uh, Drew Stubbs was traded to Colorado for Josh Outman. Yes. Uh, I was thinking about Drew Stubbs, and then I was thinking about Chris Young, because I always sort of file them into the same category. Um, they're not exactly the same, obviously, but they're sort of, you know, good above average defense guys. Um, Stubbs had shown power previously. He's not probably doesn't have the same sort of raw power that Young does, but right. Um, they and they both steal bases and they both have uh, holes in their swings. I, 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 do you, what do you think are the odds if you had to uh, bet your reputation on it, Dave Cameron, that uh, that George Springer ends up the same as those guys, 
better, worse, whatever. I think he could be maybe a little bit better than and then Chris Young. I think you know Stubbs is probably kind of the floor of like if he doesn't hit at all, but he plays pretty decent defense and runs a little bit. That's kind of like you know the fourth outfielder platoon guy. That's probably Springer's you know barring an injury anyway his floor. Mm-hmm. I think Chris Young is probably a little bit better than that and kind of a realistic. Uh, short-term option, but I think Springer's probably got a little more upside, could potentially, obviously Steamer thinks he's an above-average player right now. Uh, I think Springer could turn into a, a pretty solid regular uh, for a team that can live with 200 strikeouts a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had uh, almost a 40-40 season last year, which is impressive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, about half those plate appearances coming in the California League. Right. So you got to uh, temper your expectations. But, you know, better to do that than not to do that. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to play in the California League uh, and you're going to hit, I mean, you know, put up impressive numbers and then we don't, you know, we'll adjust them down to reasonable. You don't want to put up, like, mediocre numbers in the Cal League. That's, yeah, that's right. not so good. Hey, how's your cold doing? Uh, it's lingering. It's uh, hanging around. It uh, looks like it's going to be here through the new year. It's just going to be a 2014 cold, too. Well, you sound a little more alert than last time, though. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think I'm in, I'm in fine health other than the occasional wheezing. <laughs> Just a little bit of wheezing. Just a little bit of wheezing. The good news is, uh, after, you know, it lingered so long that I, uh, was forced to go get another blood test last week and, uh, it, the lingering cold is not due to return to leukemia, which is good news. That's great news. That's yeah. awesome news. Yeah. So, Merry Christmas to me. I'm not dying. What's your, yeah, uh, not just, actively dying. Is it like, <laughs> not more than the rest of us. Yeah, right. Is this, um, is this – that sort of blood test, was it, they just prick your arm and take a little vial and that sort of thing? Or? Yeah, they, uh, they take a lot of vials. It used to be I had a portacath in my chest, so then it was like Ugh. two giant needles, and that was not so great. Uh, but it was – the portacath was more useful for like long-term uh, chemotherapy. Right. Uh, so I had kept it in for a while after I was – uh, commissioned from or decommissioned from the hospital, released from the hospital, I guess would be the word I'm looking for. Sure. But I've had it removed, uh, and I do not, no longer have a portacath in my chest. So now they just stick me in the arm like a normal person. Uh, but yeah, they fill several vials of blood. It's, not, it's not, it's not great. No. I will say, because um, uh, my mom had, had breast cancer and she went through chemotherapy and she had the portacath. Yeah. And she said, of all the treatments that she went through, just the idea of the portacast in her, in her chest was the the part that she liked the least of the whole thing. She said uh, she just felt uncomfortable, like just to have the thing. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it protrudes. Like, uh, yeah, I had this thing for two years, basically. It was like a button sticking out from under your chest. It actually made uh, like cuddling with my wife a little difficult because the portacast went where her head used to go on my chest. <laughs> and there was like, you know, she she couldn't lay her head there because now there was this like nub. Uh, now that it's been removed, it's, uh, it's better. So. All right. Oh, uh, hey, Cameron, you have to help me with one more thing. Uh, I'm not going to be able to, because we're leaving on a train pretty soon, I'm not going to be able to take a microphone, so we have to do the introduction right now. Oh, okay. Intro. Okay. All right, you ready? Yes. It's Herb Alpern, the 2 on a Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. This is actually the end of the podcast uh, to which you're about to listen, uh, and my guest is actually still here. We're recording. This is an ex- this is a uh, an ad hoc uh, introduction we're recording at the end of the podcast. So we're in the future, but also in the past at the same time. Dave Cameron. Listeners, run, run away, listeners. Go do anything else with the next half hour of your life. Don't <laughs> stick around. So, okay, so there you know, my guest is uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Dave, uh, we think we talk about the Tanaka situation. Yeah. 
Uh, we we talk about uh, portacafs and food and crepes and uh Colettes, yes, buckwheat flour. It is a it is a wild, rousing edition of Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, that's right. And you can see Dave Cameron made it through to the end. So there's that too. That's right. He didn't die in the in the taping. Which yeah, was that's good. right. And he's and we could say he's 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 sick, but no more sick than the rest of us. Right. Well, maybe a little more sick than the rest of us, but no more sick than he has been for quite a while. Right. Okay. And so uh, so why don't you listen to this edition of the podcast? This incredibly edifying edition. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron. And it uh, begins right now, and it also ends very soon. <laughs> All right. Okay, we did it. We did. Yeah, that's going to be – the listener will have just heard that twice. Yeah, they're going to be uh, unhappy with, uh, I think, the, the extended intro. But yeah, Oh, they will, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, why don't you take, take, take care, Dave Cameron? All right. Yeah, have fun in uh, uh, Ren. Ren, yes. yes. All right, that's uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.